This is episode 194 with strength and conditioning coach, massage therapist, and author of Functional Training Anatomy, Mr. Kevin Carr. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features highly practical and actionable advice on strength training for endurance runners. I'm speaking with Kevin Carr, all about better mental models we can have about strength, efficiency, movement, and how to better transfer our work from the gym out onto the race course. Before we start, I want to make sure we're all running for the same team here. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry to give you the knowledge, mindsets, and tools to get faster, stronger, and become a more capable athlete. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. I think you'll also love our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on building focus and confidence, how to stay healthy and run with better form, strength workouts, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners all around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And I'm excited to announce a new supporter of the podcast, Tanry Outdoors. You can find them at tanry.com. They make all-natural mineral sunscreen, lip balm, and moisturizer that protects you from both types of UV rays. All Tanry products are reef-safe, never tested on animals. You can now get 10% off with code JASON at checkout at tanry.com. All right, my guest today is strength and conditioning coach Kevin Carr. He's worked with Olympians and everyone else and has amassed a wealth of experience in functional anatomy, sports performance, and personal training. He has a bachelor's of kinesiology, he's a licensed massage therapist, and has numerous professional certifications in the functional movement screen, neurokinetic therapy, functional range conditioning, and a lot more. He's also the co-author of the new book, Functional Training Anatomy, which is now available on Amazon. We're talking today about how to better think about strength for runners. What exercises are best? Why are certain exercises so valuable? What should we look for in exercise selection? What weaknesses do most runners typically have and how do we address them? We're talking about all of that and more in this episode. And for more on strength training, don't miss our free email course at strengthrunning.com slash strength. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Kevin Carr. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show and congratulations on the release of your new book too. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Jason. Uh, happy to be here. So when I asked you on the podcast, uh, I didn't actually know that you had a book coming out. So this works out quite nicely. Seriously, and great great timing by you, uh, like <laughs> in the promo run. So, uh, so I appreciate that, even if you didn't intend to do that. <laughs> I know. I wish I could say I planned that. But what I want to focus on today during this conversation is functional strength training for endurance runners. 
This is essentially the name of your book, Functional Training. And, you know, this has been kind of the buzzword in the fitness world for maybe the last decade or so. So I'd love to know how you define, you know, the term functional training. Yeah. So, I mean, functional training is is a buzzword for sure. And it's, it can be a controversial buzzword in that, you know, if you you say it out loud, you know, you're going to get one crowd of people that picture it you know, as like you standing on like a wobble board with all these bands around you doing circus tricks. And then you're going to have one crowd that says like, well, a back squat's functional because you got to get off the toilet. And and I like to try to fall somewhere in the middle uh, <laughs> because to me, functional training means it's purposeful training. It means that it's thoughtful and that you're picking exercises based on human anatomy and how it functions when we're moving in everyday life, whether that's running, whether that's um, a mother picking up her kid, whether that's a competitive hockey player out on the ice, you're picking exercises that are going to translate to the end goal activity. And so it, it means it's purposeful. And so that means I think it's also malleable based on the intended outcome, right? So I, I never say it's one exercise or one specific philosophy. It means there's a thought process to selecting the exercises based on the anatomy and the intended function of the anatomy in that outcome. So that gives you some room to play with. Um, but when I wrote the book, functional training anatomy, I wrote it for probably the 80%, the everyday athlete, the everyday recreational athlete, and the everyday competitive athlete or, or, or regular person, um, and, and think that they can apply probably the majority of this to their their everyday activity. I love that this is kind of a, a mix between the circus act and getting up off the toilet. That's just yeah. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it seems like it's more of a mindset than anything else. It's kind of a, you, you mentioned a process. It's almost a way of thinking about the exercises that you're selecting and how you're structuring a certain program so that, you know, you're getting almost a sport specific stimulus, but at the same time, you know, you're training for everyday life. You're training for, for functional activities that you're going to find yourself doing. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, too often in fitness, it's interesting, like fitness is one of these things, like I, it's something I do for a living, but it's something that every person down the st walking down the street has an opinion on. It's not the same thing as like when you go to get your car fixed, you don't ask the mechanic to fix your car this way based on what you read in a magazine or what you saw on TV or what you saw someone else doing at a different mechanic shop. You just trust the mechanic to make the decision, right? Because they're the expert. But fitness is different. Fitness is one of those things that, you know, it's in the mainstream. Everybody has experienced it. So everyone has a bias or an opinion on how they think it should be done or what they think they should do. And, and that's fine. Um, but what I often see in fitness is that people just do what they see on social media or on TV without necessarily giving much thought to the why behind the exercise selection. And I, I love the book, um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. If nobody's read that one, it's a, it's a good one. And it's really like a career and life and business development book. But if you apply it to training, where they talk about every decision you make in your business or every decision you make in your training program should go back to the why. Like, why am I doing this? What is the ultimate end goal? And when you do that, it helps you weed out all the noise in your exercise selection, all of your programming. And, and yeah, so I, I think that the end goal is like we're trying to select exercises that help the outcome, not just exercises that look good or are popular uh, or cool on social media, but but help us get to where we need to go. I really like the way that you put it with, you know, in terms of going to the mechanic and getting your car fixed and you don't have this preset ideology on how you want your car fixed. 
you just want to fix it the best, most efficient, most cost-effective way, right? And uh, it's just really funny that people have certain ideas about fitness that are very similar to that. And and when you put it in that context, I think that is really illuminating. Um, Kevin, what isn't functional training in your view that maybe you see as often passing as functional training? All right. So like I said, you always want to paint it in context, right? And so like, a more traditionalist approach to functional training and people would say like, Hey, machines are no good or, you know, powerlifting based exercises are no good because they don't transfer to sports. They don't transfer to life. But for, if someone's only goal was hypertrophy, if they were a bodybuilder, there's a reason why bodybuilders choose machine based exercises like, uh, like seated leg curls and leg presses and seated overhead presses and seated leg extensions, because they allow the least variability in joint movement. And the only goal for that person is hypertrophy, right? They just want to make the muscle bigger. So any demands for stability, any demands for uh, challenge to the whole kinetic chain from top to, top to bottom are taken away. So you can just isolate that muscle function. So for, for a bodybuilder, those are functional training exercises, right? Similarly, uh, a power lifter, they compete in squatting, deadlifting, and bench pressing. They have three very defined activities. It's a very narrow scope, right? And so for them, those are the only things they need to get better at. They'll do some accessory exercises to help, but those are the the big things. So those exercises are functional. The problem is we've taken the things that have been taught in bodybuilding and in powerlifting and then apply them to everyday people and to athletes. And while like these are the two thought processes, bodybuilding and powerlifting that birthed weightlifting and really pushed it into the public, the public's eye those techniques and those methods don't necessarily translate to the recreational runner or the competitive runner or the competitive athlete because their demands aren't max strength or max hypertrophy. It's strength, power, stability, and mobility. So when it comes to probably the audience that's going to listen to this podcast or you or I, those those exercises don't fall into what I would call like the functional strength bucket. I don't think back squatting translates for the recreational runner. I don't think a leg press translates for the runner or the athlete uh, because it doesn't necessarily adequately replicate the demands that they're going to face in life and they're going to face in sport. Um, So there's just less carryover. And like you said, we're looking for efficiency and improvement of that end goal activity. And uh, we're looking, so we're going to look for exercise choices that provide us that more readily. I love it. Now, how could we adapt these ideas to the endurance runner. So in other words, how should runners be thinking about their strength training to help them accomplish all the goals that they want to accomplish when they get in the gym? Everything from, yes, I want to actually be stronger. I do want to be able to develop some power. I want to stay healthy and prevent injuries, which is a huge thing for runners and, you know, build some economy and efficiency with my stride, which certainly can be done with strength work. How can we you know, use these principles that you're talking about to better inform our strength training. In the context of performance training for, especially for things like running, I always say that you want to be a bucket filler. And what I mean by that is you want to fill the buckets that are traditionally empty in that population. And for, for endurance athletes, that's almost always the strength and power bucket, right? There's plenty of endurance. Like when I work with endurance athletes, I don't really have to worry about that programming at all. I just make sure that my strength training doesn't interfere with their end goal activity. I'm not going to screw up their their road work or, or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, but typically the glaring weakness 
um, is single leg strength, core strength, and power output with things like plyometrics. And it, the best part is it doesn't take a lot, right? If you have a really potent stimulus, it only takes like a couple drops to make a big difference. So like you can have huge, huge impacts on running performance uh, for the endurance athlete by just a basic strength and plyometric program that's done two days a week that focuses on um, single leg lower body work, uh, multiplanar core work, um, and and single leg plyometrics primarily. Um, it, and there's a huge amount of carryover for, like you said, um, just overall strength for injury prevention, but also for running economy um, and power output. And and so I always I put all my my energy into filling the strength and power buckets, so to speak, uh, for those types of athletes. Yeah, that's great because you know one of the biggest mistakes that I often see among endurance athletes is that you know they get into the gym. And this was admittedly my big mistake when I first started going to the gym, first started lifting weights. You know, I had this idea in my head that, well, I'm an endurance runner. I want more endurance. So I'm going to go in the gym and I'm going to do five sets of 20 repetitions. Or in other words, I'm going to lift for endurance. And now that I've, you know, grown up a little bit and I've, I've read some things and educated myself, it's exactly how you're describing it. I have plenty of endurance. That's what I'm training almost every day with almost every type of exercise that I'm doing. I'm running a lot. I'm doing aerobic workouts. You're doing the long runs. You're running, you know, 10 miles a day, whatever it is. But on the strength and power side of things, that's where you're really lacking. And I found that as soon as you started really focusing on those aspects of your fitness, the aspects of your fitness that are usually ignored with your running training, unless you're doing, you know, hill work and some real good sprint work that can sort of take the place of some of that, but not certainly not all of it, then you're, you just feel a lot better. <laughs> you know, you start feeling faster, you start feeling more powerful, you start feeling that snap in your legs when you're doing faster workouts and racing. And, and I think filling your buckets is a really nice way to put it, put it because endurance runners know our endurance bucket is already overflowing because we're constantly filling it with endurance work. And so if we have this bucket mentality, that seems to me very helpful because it really allows us to, to think about the other aspects of our fitness that we're neglecting. And for runners, it's almost always strength and power. Yeah. And I always say that if you can fill up your strength, your power and your mobility bucket, if you're an endurance athlete, it allows you to build a bigger endurance bucket because that's the big one we want but you're going to be capped out um, due to soft tissue issues, due to uh, strength issues, due to power issues, if you can't address those, right? But the, the, if you can start to fill some of those other ones, it gives you a little bit more room on the other one to start to keep filling, keep filling, keep filling um, to get to the highest level of whatever that performance is that you're looking for. Yeah. And that's another great way to put it because I've always said that, you know, I'm, I'm a runner. I don't, I would rather be out running than in the weight room, lifting weights. But the way I look at it, the strength training enables runners to do more of the thing that they love, which is running. And, you know, you said it almost puts a cap on you if you don't fill up those buckets. And, and I think that's a, a good frame to have on that issue because it really opens up your eyes on, wow, this is actually going to increase the size of my running bucket, my endurance bucket, so I can do more of that. And most runners would probably like to hear that. Yeah. Now, Kevin, in your book, you put a lot of emphasis on multi-planner exercises. Can you help us understand that term? Yeah. And so this is another thing with the functional training word that gets misconstrued. So people think multi-planar means 
you know, I'm, I'm reaching over here. I'm swinging over here. I'm doing all this like crazy, um, multi-directional stuff, but it's important to realize anything that's done unilaterally and done on one leg is inherently a multi-planar exercise because it demands the use of multi-planar muscles. So if you think about a bilateral exercise, like a, a back squat, for instance, it's a primarily sagittal plane exercise, right? There's not a lot of challenge side to side in the frontal plane or rotationally in the transverse plane because I'm set on two legs. But the second you're on one leg, in order to keep from falling over, whether you know it or not, you have to start using your adductors, you have to start using your lateral glute muscles, you have to start using your obliques and your QLs to, tr to stabilize yourself in the frontal and the transverse planes. And so uh, uh, what I try to always stress on is that are we thinking about training these muscles that are going to help align us in multiplanar fashion? And in reality, anything we do, especially running, is a multiplanar activity, even if the primary motion happens in the sagittal plane. Um, so what I always say is that like the global movement is sagittal based, but the local stability demand is, is typically transverse or frontal plane based. And so that's why I mean, we put such an emphasis on multiplanar core training as well as unilateral strength work um, to increase the demand on those multiplanar muscles. Can you talk a little bit more about how running is a globally uh, sagittal plane activity? You know, we're, we're moving straight ahead most of the time. But, you know, if you kind of look at it, you know, stride to stride, you're using multi-planes. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and help us understand that? Yeah. So if you're just watching someone run, like kind of uh, from the big picture, you just see up and down movement in the legs, you see people moving forward. So, I mean, you would be like, oh, well, that's primarily sagittal plane. And, and that's probably right because there's a lot of ground impact. But if you actually take a second, if you if you track the motion of the rib cage, and if you track the motion of the pelvis and of the femurs, especially at the rib cage and the pelvis, there's a lot of transverse plane activity, as well as frontal plane activity side to side, especially at the hips, right? Um, and the ability to maintain that stability and control it, and I'm not saying not move. When we say stability, we're not saying, hey, you're supposed to be like a brick or a, a stiff, but being able to control it efficiently is one going to allow you to have less economic cost in what you're doing, um, but also keep joint ranges of motion and joint stress to a minimum. Um, typically, when you see people with like typical, you know, IT band or like lateral leg, lateral hip um, uh, discomfort, so things like IT band or uh, lateral hip bursitis, these things that you often see with runners, um, it's lots of times I find in our clinic is a lack of control and strength in the frontal plane. Because every time your foot strikes the ground, these lateral hip muscles, these adductors, the obliques are what is controlling that motion um, in keeping your hip from swaying out or keeping you from side bending uh, past where we probably should be. Um, so when you're doing things like a, a suitcase carry, when you're holding a weight on one side and walking and trying to keep a vertical posture or a side plank or a single leg squat where you have to stack yourself over your leg, you're actively training all of those muscles to keep yourself centered so you can be more efficient when you go to take this strength that you've developed in the weight room and carry it over to active gait and something like running.
Yeah, a lot of runners have those lateral issues where maybe it's hip bursitis. I know for me personally, my injury of choice is IT band syndrome. You know, that's 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 the injury that I tend to get when I'm pushing the envelope and, you know, maybe making some silly training decisions on my end. But maybe we can make a, a little detour here and talk a little bit more about IT band syndrome itself because you know, this is an injury that afflicts so many runners. Uh, I know quite a few listeners of the podcast have either had this injury um, or have at least contacted me about it. And I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the more effective uh, exercises to treat this injury and and kind of this, the context around why we're doing them in the first place. Is, is this building strength in the hips? And, and really, how is this all connected? Yeah. So lots of times, because I also, um, if you're not familiar, I'm also a massage therapist um, as well as strength conditioning coach. So I see people from the whole spectrum from when they're injured and dealing with chronic issues, and I kind of bring them back to performance. So I, I treat a lot of these things all the way through the gamut. And so when you see someone present with lateral discomfort, whether it's in the hip or in like more of that lateral quad IT band type area, um, what you often find from a strength and stability standpoint is that they have trouble maintaining um, a good relationship between the pelvis and the femur, meaning that they can't maintain stability in the frontal and transverse plane. You, um, so they struggle sometimes with things like single leg squats or single leg deadlifts, uh, where there's a really high demand in the weight room to maintain that. Um, so from a strength standpoint, I, I very much prioritize um, developing lateral hip uh, strength and stability, um, as well as in single leg plyometrics, uh, focusing on sticking a landing and being able to hold a position where your head is over your hip is over your knee is over your foot. What you find with a lot of people when they struggle is they'll, they'll land and they side bend and it looks like, you know, they're, they're on like a, uh, a wobbly board. I want to see that you're able to stick and hold your position and maintain everything over so that you can start to develop the sensory motor and neurological control, because part of it's our nervous system, as well as actual the muscular development uh, locally at the hip and at the lateral quad and at the, the pelvic stabilizers. And so um, often some soft tissue work is indicated, uh, whether that's self-administered soft tissue work with something like a foam roller, or if you're with a therapist using their hands um, to, to reduce the resting tone in the tissue. That's typically where I start um, with people because it's very uncomfortable. Um, and then you know, working through some active mobility work. Another thing I tend to see um, from a movement quality and soft tissue quality standpoint is a lack of internal rotation in their hips. Um, if you look at what your hips do, they can externally rotate or they can internally rotate, right? And when there's a lot of tension into external rotation, which you're going to see with most running and athletes, um, there's more tissue in that lateral tone of the hip, which is just going to translate right down to the IT band. So we tend to prioritize improvement of internal rotation of the hips, and then that lateral stability that I spoke about uh, just just previously. So um, a kind of multifactorial issue working from movement quality all the way to local strength and stability in the hips and lateral quads. With you talking about all these problems that runners who have IT band syndrome have, I just feel personally attacked, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you're, you're, there's, you're, you're one of many millions. So, uh, you know, it's not just you. It's funny when you're talking about, you know, sticking the landing on, on a single leg, uh, type of plyometric exercise, and then 
a lot of these runners tend to have issues with, you know, they can't stick the landing and they'll fall to the side or they'll have this rotation. What's interesting, there's that frontal plane stability right there and, and not having the strength and stability to really counteract those forces. And, and if you don't have that, you know, you end up falling over to the side and, and not really being able to hold your body in that position. Um, and I had a, a really interesting conversation a while back on the podcast where, you know, the, the, the lesson was to make sure you're steering the ship. And when your body is moving through space, it's your body, it's your ship, and you have to steer it the way that it's supposed to steer or it's supposed to move. And I think that's just a, a great way of, of thinking about, you know, the, the mental side of these movements and really making sure that, you know, that's a nice cue to really help you, you know, move forward and, you know, move the way that you're, you know, technically supposed to. Uh, and then if you build the strength on top of, you know, that more mindfulness practice there, it, it'd be a really beneficial thing for you to do. Yeah. And that, and that speaks to the idea of providing movement variability within a training program, right? And so in my experience, I've worked with a, a number of runners, uh, triathletes, um, things like that. And, and, and in their mind, again, their, their activity is primarily sagittal, right? Like they just go forward. But um, I want to give them movement variability so they can solve a movement task under any circumstances. The brain wants to have solutions and have multiple solutions. And if we don't work outside of the constraints of what just our activity is, which is in this case, just running, then you're not going to necessarily have those. So it's important to me in a training program that especially during the warm up and plyometric portion, we're doing things sideways, we're doing things backwards, we're doing things rotationally. So that, like you said, you're able to control and steer your ship most effectively when you need to, because we know very clearly from the research that, you know, when we start to get tired, when we start to fatigue, our motor control starts to reduce, right? And so our ability to solve some of these movement problems um, is limited. So if we start to give our athletes options, if we teach them to be athletes from a, a very general sense, it's going to help them when the stress gets higher in their training. So you tend to see less of these accumulative issues that come as the training gets more intense. This very much reminds me of the guys I went to college with that were distance runners, and then they went and joined the steeplechasers and they could just pick up hurdling. They could hurdle uh, the water barrier and just jump on top of that three foot high barrier and vault themselves over that water pit. And they've never practiced any of this before. And, and it seems like they have just a higher degree of movement, fluency, general athleticism that allows you to do that. And, you know, in my view, that is almost like currency as an athlete. And, and that really allows you to do so many other things, even if you know, you may not necessarily want to run a steeplechase or a trail race or an obstacle course race, but it is going to make you into a stronger runner, a more injury resilient runner. And, and I think a more coordinated, faster athlete as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you did say something really fascinating. I wanted to dig into a little bit. I don't think I've ever heard this phrase. You said solving movement problems mm -hmm. is a movement problem. Something like you know, when we're very fatigued at the end of a race and, and our form starts to falter, you know, I, I'm sure if you've ever watched the last couple miles of a marathon, you've just seen the human carnage of people battling, <laughs> you know, the highest levels of fatigue that probably the average runner might ever experience. You know, it, it, is that the kind of movement problem that you're talking about? Yeah, it could be. It could be that exact context that you're talking about the end of a, a long and hard race. Um, and in other sports, it could be just unique positions that you get put into 
that you don't necessarily experience in the weight room. Like very often, athletes get hurt when uh, the conditions of their competition exceed or are novel um, with respect to whatever they're doing in training, right? That's when we get into trouble, right? You know, three sets of 10 over and over uh, is good, but what's going to happen when you have to do something different um, out in the field of play or out in competition? Um, so I, I'm a big believer in in providing novel stimulus to people, even if it's just in a warm up setting. The warm up of of a workout. Some people that like to try to like be like, oh, I don't need to warm up. I'm just going to go lift. But it's a great time to work on skill development, unique neurological coordination, hopping, jumping, skipping, uh, crawling, things like that that start to develop your nervous system more. Um, more robustly. And so if you think about our everyday life, especially like you think about the recreational runner probably has a job. Um, most of their day is, you know, they get up, they eat breakfast, they sit in their car, they go to work, they sit at their desk, they sit in their car, they go home, they eat dinner, they sit on the couch. There's not a lot of novel stress. Even if they do a, a weight room program, if they're not doing things where they go sideways, backwards, and they rotate, um, it, you, you start to lose it. I mean, mobility as well as movement skills are a move it or lose it quality in that um, if you don't practice it, our nervous system is very efficient from an evolutionary standpoint. We don't hold on to things that we don't need because it's costly. Um, so we want to continue to teach our body how to do things like hopping diagonally backwards, forwards, because um, when you start to get tired, your mechanics go downhill. Maybe there's an obstacle. Maybe you have to step around or over someone, um, or maybe you're just in a unique position. You want to make sure that you have something in your movement vocabulary um, deep down in your nervous system to, to solve that problem. And an example where this is really relevant for runners is for the trail runner, you know, the runner who's going to be navigating a lot of technical terrain and, you know, anyone who's been running trails for longer than a week is going to fall down. You know, I'm good for one or two amazing falls a year. And usually it hurts my ego more than anything else, but I, I think it really helps athletes who are doing a lot of trail running and trail races in particular, if they need this movement fluency, this ability to move in, in ways where, you know, if you're training on the road, you are simply not going to be prepared for a trail race. And, and part of that is being able to fall gracefully, being able to navigate that terrain. And it's amazing when you see, you know, some of these elite trail runners, they're covering rocky terrain with roots and all these undulations and they're doing it so gracefully they're doing it with almost effortlessly and then inevitably they fall and then they just bounce right back up and you know they roll into it and it's just this you know they know how to fall and, and it seems to me that a lot of this kind of training really helps prepare particularly a trail runner for the demands of those more technical trail races yeah, as the as unpredictability of the terrain and the activity increases, there's a higher and higher demand for variability in how you do things in the in your training, whether it's in the weight room or, or wherever it might be. And so, I mean, the, just the sensory motor coordination of being able to look one way and have your foot go this way, rather than if you're just on the road and it's just one leg, one leg, one leg after another, um, you have to think about obstacles and that completely changes everything. And that, that's, that's something you, you do have to prepare for, especially if that's where you intend to compete and intend to train. Is this why my first trail run of the season, a couple of weeks ago, I felt like I was run over by a truck the next day. <laughs> yeah. Your lower <laughs> leg probably was like your light, your calves and like a uh, tibialis and everything were probably all jacked up your feet just because it's a variable stressor. I actually always tell, sometimes I say to people um, who I work with here who aren't runners, 
um, a great end stage rehab activity for lower extremity rehab is just hiking and walking in the woods because of the variable surfaces and the way that imparts stress on the plantar fascia, on the Achilles, on the calf, on the uh, tibialis muscles, um, the peroneals and things like that because of the variable surfaces. Because if you're always just practicing on perfect turf like we have here, uh, you, it's hard to replicate that, right? Um, whereas you know, I, there's not a lot of exercises I can do to always replicate that. Variable surfaces for just walking or, or running um, can be a good way to to stress the tissues uh, in a more variable environment. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm always telling runners to try to vary the terrain that they're running all the time because, you know, running is very repetitive. And so let's let's put our foot and lower leg in slightly different positions. Let's experience different, you know, surface hardness levels from surface to surface. And, and I think that's going to be great for injury prevention. Now, going a little off script here, when you recommend folks, you know, do some hiking on some varying terrain to hopefully build some foot and lower leg strength and mobility and just ability to move, are you having them do this in your typical hiking shoe? Because I personally like cannot wear hiking boots. They are so stiff. I can't feel the ground. There's zero ground feel underneath me. I I would rather go hiking here out in the Rocky Mountains outside of Denver wearing Nike freeze. Cause I just want to feel everything underneath me. Yeah. And, and that brings up the, the perfect point in that I find footwear is so personalized. Um, the, one of the biggest questions I get with people and I, I treat a lot of lower leg stuff and foot stuff is what shoe should I wear? Um, and that's really going to depend on their foot, um, and what feels good to them. And that's not always the answer they want. The, the, I, it depends. Um, but there's a lot of people that prefer, uh, a zero drop, a minimalist type shoe where they can feel the ground and they can depend on the stability through their foot and their arch where there's some people um, who feel they want more of a stiffness to it. They want something that's either a boot or a more built up shoe. And I always tell people the only way you're going to know it is to to give it a try. Um, like, cause I'm somebody, uh, personally who I have a really large arch. I have a pretty stiff foot, very like supinated on the outside of my feet, uh, probably an account of a lot of lifting. Um, so to me, like I like being able to feel the ground similar to you. All my shoes are pretty minimalist. Even what I hike in is unless like I'm doing something in, in for a long rock in the snow, I'm, I'm pretty much wearing a more minimalist type shoe. Um, whereas I, I know a number of clients who, uh, they, they do not feel good in those. And so, um, I always tell people, find what works for you. Um, and if you're going to progress towards something that's more minimalist, you have to treat it like strength training. You have to progress over time. You have to treat it like running and that you're not going to start in a Vibram today, right? Uh, you're going to be in like something like a Nike free or something with a little bit more support and work your way there. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, the, the idea of progression when it comes to shoes, I think is also a really good one because like you said, you, there's no couch to Vibram five fingers, you know, <laughs> no. you really well, that, need to, <laughs> that was the problem when the minimalist shoes blew up. I, you know how many stress fractures there were, you know how many people with Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis and uh, shin splints, because I remember when like, it must've been 10 years ago, more than that, uh, when Vibram's first came out. And, and I remember seeing a bunch of people come to the gym and then a bunch of people going running in those things. And, uh, and then all these people were coming in with these foot and lower leg issues. And I said, well, you went from zero to a hundred, uh, without checking any of the boxes in between. And, and there's always got to be a progressive demand, uh, to, to get to where we need to go. And, and also that said, there, there's going to be the right shoe for you. And that probably might not have been it for a lot of people. <laughs> 
Right. It's a trial and error experimentation issue. And do you actually know who is responsible for pretty much for the barefoot running minimalist craze 10 to 12 years ago? Yeah. The old born to run, you know, born to run. It was a boon to podiatrists and and physical therapists everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kevin, I want to talk about one more fascinating concept that you write about in your book. Uh, You talk about movement quality. I'd love for you to talk about uh, what you mean by movement quality and and maybe some of the things that affect your ability to move with a certain amount of quality. Yeah. And so this can be a tricky term um, because, you know, the purists in uh, some circles would say, like, that's implying that there's an ideal way to move. And there isn't. There's a lot of variability in how people move. Um, I see hundreds of people a day come through our facility who move differently. But what we mean in it, the purest sense, is that those people's joints can get in positions to absorb and adapt to stress, right? Um, at, very simply, if your ankle does not dorsiflex, um, you're going to have an issue absorbing force up the chain when you run, right? Because you're still going to run, and there's a lot of people out there running whose ankles don't move or move very well at all. And they make up for that lack of movement by increasing. Uh, frontal plane motion in the ankle, increasing forward translation of the knee while picking the heel up, um, increasing extension of their spine to try to make up for that lack of dorsiflexion, right? And over time, that it, with if you get the cumulative effect of adding miles and miles and miles, it makes you less efficient at what you do. And for some people, that might not show up, that you might not have a symptom, but for a, a vast majority of people, that could show up in back pain, that could show up in hip pain, that could show up in knee pain, right? And so when I say movement quality, it means we want to ensure that you have the adequate ranges of motion to then go and stress them in a training environment. And so what happens in with a lot of times, especially with runners, in, in the, the blessing and the curse of running is that it's there's a very low economic um, requirement to get into it, right? The, the great part of running is you don't need a gym membership. You don't need a team. You don't need a ball. You don't need to join a club. You put on a pair of shoes and you run out. And so like, that's, what's great is that it gives access to exercise to everyone. On the flip side, um, there's a lot of people who just, like we talked about the shoes who just go out and run and they, there's no thought of progressive overload or program design. Um, and there's no thought of is, Am I ready to do this? Right? Uh, are my joints ready to do this? Where sometimes a quick little tune-up where we get people's ankles moving, get their hips moving, um, and, and, and things of that nature, uh, they're going to be, be better able to accommodate that stress of that running activity afterwards. So, um, I, I mean, a big part when I talk about functional training, it means it's not just strength training. It's the whole recipe, meaning they come in and do mobility work. Um, in movement quality work, they come in and do a warm up. They come and do power. They come and do strength. Right. So it's the whole recipe that makes a difference. Um, and a big part of that is, is focusing on movement quality. It sounds like something like an FMS, a functional movement screen, would be something that you might do or uh, someone else might do to kind of isolate those areas and identify them where you might not have movement quality. Is that something that you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, FMS is a, is a great system, as is any of these systems. I think there needs to be a needs analysis. There needs to be uh, uh, an assessment where we look at someone and say, hey, is this something we should work on or not? And so as a coach, 
um, or as a consumer, uh, as the runner looking for a coach, you want to find someone who, who does identify these things, whether it's a movement quality issue, a strength issue, or a power issue, or your running coach looking at programming or an endurance issue. You need to have a needs analysis. And so uh, um, a movement-based assessment like an FMS or an SFMA or, or whatever uh, system someone might ascribe to, as long as they look at these things, can go a really long way to just um, ensuring that we're addressing the things we need to address. I'd love to talk a little bit about what affects movement quality, because, you know, you, you mentioned a runner not being able to dorsiflex her foot and, you know, then you're just becoming more inefficient over time because you're essentially building fitness on top of dysfunction. What are some things that you see that are, you know, regularly that negatively affect your ability to move well? Are these things that happen in our everyday lives that we might be able to start addressing or, or, you know, how do we think about this? I mean, a big thing is training stress. And as training stress increases, your variability in joint movement is going to typically decrease, right? And so as you get better at a more specific activity, your body, again, is very efficient, right? So if you're running very intensely and running a lot, um, your body tend you're going to tend to get stiffer into that activity. You're going to have little less ranges of motion. So when you see people in the weight room, they're like power lifters, they tend to have a lot, very little frontal and transverse plane motion because they're just doing things sagely, right? Um, but then when they if they get if they slip up or get fatigued, that's tend to be, tends to be when they get issues. So if you think about a runner, um, over time, you start to get a lot of resting tone in those lower leg muscles and the calf and the Achilles and the foot. And that ankle tends to get stiffer and more compressed due to the repetitive stress. So I always communicate to the runners I work with that that increases the need for you to do some sort of just general maintenance and warm-up program over time. Active ankle mobility work, active ankle eversion, inversion work, active plantar flexion work, um, and mobility work through the toes and the foot to maintain movement quality and all of those joints. Cause it, it's also tends to be everything beneath the knees. We neglect more than anything else. Uh, we kind of take it for granted. Whereas uh, we want to spend time kind of just like you rotate the tires on a car or cha- and change your tires. You've got to maintenance your own body. And so as training stress goes up, uh, typically movement quality will start to go down. Um, the same can be said for the everyday person. Um, if you're staying in one posture all the time, meaning like seated, like you and I are right now, uh, your body's going to adapt to that um, because that's what you do the most. Um, and that might not be the best adaptation for whatever your chosen recreational activity is. So you want to make sure, um, you know, addressing mobility in the ankles, the hips, the shoulders, the T-spine um, on a daily basis is going to help kind of counteract that in addition to doing uh, consistent full body strength training. It's funny. I talk a lot about, you know, a lot of body weight exercises, a lot of mobility work, a lot of things that aren't technically very difficult, but, you know, I consider them like bringing your body in for a tune up at the shop. And whenever I talk to a runner who has only been running and, you know, they're in this vicious injury cycle, they're not feeling good on a day to day basis. And okay, let's let's start a little bit of a movement practice. Let's do a dynamic warm up before we go running. Let's do 10 to 20 minutes of a variety of exercises after we go running to build some strength, but also to help us cool down, to get in other ranges of motion. Inevitably, three, four weeks later, they're a whole new runner. I feel amazing. I, I feel youthful. I just, I don't feel creaky anymore, which is a common complaint among runners. 
So this has been just an amazing advertisement (laughs) for the last (laughs) 40 minutes of, you know, just doing all the little things, which I, I really don't think are little at all, because then they enable you to go do the running, which is what us runners really want to do. Yeah. And I always say it's important to realize small but potent um, interventions can have a really large impact. Like I have some runners um, who see me multiple days a week for like a full training program um, and they get soft tissue work. They do the whole gamut. But I also have some that come one one week, once a week or once every other week, in addition to like me building them this at-home kind of movement practice like you just mentioned. And it's not like an all-encompassing program, but it helps, like you said, just keep their body from feeling creaky and stiff and uncomfortable um, and allows them to get the training volumes and intensities that they want. I mean, you, uh, every runner I know is upset when they can't do the mileage that they want and they can't do the running program that they want because their body is breaking down on them. Um, and so we want to find interventions that doesn't have to be all time consuming. Um, it, it, it can be like a little bit every single day to kind of keep you on the road and keep you going. Um, but if you're choosing the right interventions and you're being consistent, most importantly with them all the time, uh, it can have a really big impact on, on your outcome. You know, this very much reminds me of former Boston marathon winner, Meb Kaflesky, and he won the race. I think he was like 39 years old or 40 years old, typically past your prime as a marathoner. And he wrote a book about training and, and most of the book isn't even about running. It's about the drills and the foam rolling and the soft tissue work and the exercises. And I think that really goes to show if you want longevity in the sport, especially if you're pushing the envelope, if you're someone who's training for races and you're trying to run fast and set PRs, then, you know, this is the work that's going to lengthen your lifespan in the sport. And so I think it's just so powerful to, to really commit to it because I, I think the transformative effect is just, is just stunning. Yeah, absolutely. You got to have a consistent, I always say, uh, consistency trumps everything. Having consistent routines done well and consistent inputs over time or make the difference. And it's never, um, you know, one, like sometimes people come out the the gates hard and want to do a bunch of stuff, but I want to see something you can carry on for weeks, months, years to come. And that's usually the long payoff for someone over the course of a career or, or some recreational activity. I love it. I'm always saying consistency is the secret sauce of successful running. So you got to do that consistently. Uh, Kevin, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your expertise. Uh, I'm really excited to pick up your book. And I think these lessons and ideas are just so helpful for endurance runners because we're arguably a group that very much needs this kind of work. And so do you have any final words for our audience today? Any, Any big lessons that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah. At the end of the day, don't be scared of strength training. Um, I, the, the biggest complaint I hear is people are going to get big and bulky um, and it's going to slow them down and make them stiff. But I always say like the idea that strength training is going to turn you to big and bulky is that like the idea that like me driving my car is going to turn me into a race car driver. Every guy in the gym wants to be big and bulky uh, who, who's a meathead. And, and a lot of us haven't got there yet. You're going to uh, typically your body type is going to end up looking like who you're supposed to be. Um, and most runners don't have that type of physique. It doesn't, uh, hypertrophy, te- uh, is one of those things that people should not necessarily be scared of. Uh, we're just looking to get strength and power. So embracing a, a basic consistent strength and power program with some mobility work a couple times a week would, would be life changing for the majority of people. 
um, and, and find a coach to do it with because that's typically a big game changer. Kevin, I might steal that analogy because what I've always said was, you know, this is like the person who, you know, wants to run a couple miles a few times a week and, but they don't want to because they're afraid they might become a sub five minute miler. Exactly. That's my pick. That's another really good one. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> the work that goes into that is so demanding, just like hypertrophy and muscle growth. I mean, yeah. you get your diet right. You got to make sure you're not doing too much cardio. There's all these other things. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no problem. My pleasure. <laughs> all right, Kevin, this has been so fun. Thank you for being here. Uh, if folks want to learn more about uh, your work and your book, can they go somewhere online and find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, if you want to find just training content for free, uh, my Instagram is at movement is medicine. That's where you're going to get the most training information. I pretty much post on there daily. Um, we also have certification called certified functional strength coach. I'm in our little video studio here now. Um, so certifiedfsc.com and then my book, uh, that with that I wrote along with Mary Kate fight, who's my co-author, um, is available on Amazon, um, as well as on the human kinetics website under functional training anatomy. So you could, you can find it there. Excellent. I'm going to include links to that in the show notes on the strength running site. Kevin, thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's my pleasure. And there it is. I had so much fun chatting with Kevin and learned a few new exercise science terms that you're definitely going to see on the Strength Running site soon. Don't forget to check out Kevin's new book, Functional Training Anatomy on Amazon. And if you got value from this discussion, please let me know with a review on Apple Podcasts. Finally, let's make sure we're all protecting ourselves now that the Northern Hemisphere is heating up. Our new sponsor, Tannery Outdoors, creates all-natural skin protective products for athletes that you can check out at tannery.com. If you decide to take the plunge, code JASON will save you 10% on your purchase. Now, I know a lot of you know that I live in Denver, Colorado. Here in the Mile High City, the sun is amazingly strong. I've never experienced anything like it outside of tropical places near the equator. And even though putting on sunscreen is something I loathe, I've had to make it a habit every day at these altitudes. Tannery offers all-natural mineral sunscreen, lip balm, daily moisturizer, and an after-sun moisturizer made by runners for runners. And these mineral sunscreens typically work better than the chemical sunscreens as they protect you from both types of UV rays. And none of them have phthalates, parabens, or artificial fragrances. They're reef safe, never tested on animals. And I absolutely love that Tannery gives back 1% of their proceeds to help protect our national parks. Use code JASON to save 10% on your order at tannery.com. Thank you for listening, guys, and being part of our community here. Don't ever hesitate to reach out to me at support at strengthrunning.com if you need anything. We'll be in touch very soon. 